James chapter 1, I'll give you a little bit uh, for review. We gave an introduction to the book of James. Then we've been talking for a couple of weeks now about the trying of your faith. And we've worked our way down to about verse number 12. The handout that we had passed out before were just about worked through to the end of it. But I'll go ahead and give you the bullet points. In verse number 1, James introduces himself as a servant. He simply introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that teaches us that we should not be concerned with our position, with our status, with how much credit we get for what we do. But if we are a servant of Jesus Christ, then that should simply be enough. And James, as an apostle and as a writer of one of the books of the New Testament, gives us a great example that he's willing to simply introduce himself as a servant. And Dale, it's great to see you come in. We were just giving prayer for you a minute ago. I said, I know he loves to be here. He may have to be working. And have you heard anything else about Skip? Um, she's having uh, blood clot issues. on her way to pick her up from the hospital now. Okay, so, so she, they think that uh, they gave her that uh, remdesivir or something like okay. that. Okay, one of the treatments, and clotting is the known issue with that. So she's been in and out of the hospital a couple of times in the last couple of days. But she's on her way back home. Now. But going home tonight. Well, praise the Lord for that. Let's please continue to keep her in our prayers. And then the next point we had: James is written to saved Jews saved Jews. And then we have written these Jews were going through great trials. They were from Jerusalem. They came to believe in Jesus Christ. But then there was a great crackdown on the Christians who lived in Jerusalem. And Saul went from house to house finding Christians, stoning Stephen, one of the first deacons, and they had to scatter abroad everywhere to flee and to run for their lives. These are the people whom James is writing to. So one of the great themes of the book of James is trials and how to glorify God through trials and hardships that come into our lives. It says in the book of Acts that as they were persecuted and had to flee Jerusalem, that they scattered everywhere preaching the gospel. So they stayed faithful to Christ and as they were persecuted and had to leave their homes and their hometown, they still proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ had died for their sins, that he was the Messiah, and that faith in him was the only way of salvation. Trials produce patience was number one. Trials produce patience. James 1.3 says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh Patience, but let patience have her perfect work, verse 4, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And last week we talked mainly about point number two, God prescribes wisdom. God prescribes wisdom for us to deal with our trials. In verse 5 through 8, we're told that if we simply go to God and not ask him doubting or wavering, but go to him and with faith and trust in his character, knowing who he is, knowing that he has promised he will grant us wisdom. If we pray by faith, God, give me wisdom. He promises he will give it to us. Verse five, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally 
and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. One of the greatest promises, perhaps, in all of the Bible that's so clear and easy to understand and down low on the shelf where each and every one of us can grab it. Wisdom, to have discernment, to know between good and bad, and to make wise decisions and good decisions instead of bad decisions. God promises, if you will ask by faith for wisdom, I will give it to you. We certainly need wisdom at all parts points of our life for all kinds of day-to-day issues. But here in James 1, the context is people who are going through trials and they're reminded, ask God for wisdom during this time. And God says he will give it to you. Then we come to number three, which is where we'll spend the first part of the message tonight. The Bible teaches us that trials will be packaged with temptation. Trials will be packaged with temptation. I had point number three last week that I was wanting to get through and didn't make it all the way through it. So I think what we'll do tonight is the first few minutes of the Bible study will conclude this section on the trying of your faith, then move into the next few verses, which talk about good gifts, good gifts that come from God and a few thoughts to go along with that. But again, all of this chapter and even this book could be put under the heading or the context of the trying of your faith because the people were being written to during this time needed to hear all of these messages as they were being persecuted, as they had to flee for their lives simply because they believed in Jesus Christ. They needed to be reminded, allow God to give you these trials so that it will produce eternal fruit like patience. Ask God for wisdom. And now we come to the point where James tells them that trials will be packaged with Temptation. Let's pick it up tonight in verse number 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. That word for temptation in verse number 12, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It has to do with a putting to proof with outside pressures that come against us. And one of the ways that the word temptation is sometimes translated in the New Testament is trying. Okay, so the word temptation and trials are closely linked. We think of temptation, we think of things that appeal to our flesh that we're not supposed to have, that we're tempted to partake in. And that is a meaning of temptation, which the verses that follow talk about temptation to sin. But it's also been said in other parts of the Bible that you're going through temptation simply when you're being put to the test by outside circumstances causing hardships and trials, and it's like we're going through a test and God is watching to see how we will respond to the outside temptations and trials that come against us. Here, verse 12 tells us that we are blessed when we endure temptation. For when we are tried, the Bible says, we will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. A crown speaks of a reward. A crown speaks of an eternal reward that is given to God's children when they faithfully meet the test or when they faithfully serve him. You can do an entire study in the New Testament on the subject of crowns, but there's either five or six different crowns that are listed in the New Testament that tell us specifically we will receive a reward in heaven if we do certain things. One is a crown we will receive 
for faithful endurance, for serving the Lord faithfully and enduring the, whatever goes on in our life. There is a crown of rejoicing that we will receive at his coming. There is a crown that are promised to those who love his appearing, who long for Jesus Christ to come, to take his rightful place on the throne, to be king of kings and lord of lords. There's a crown in eternity promised for those people. First Peter tells us about a shepherd's crown that shall not fade away for the overseers of the church if they are found faithful in serving the Lord. Then there's another crown that is mentioned here in verse number 12, which is the crown of life. And the context of the verse tells us that we receive the crown of life if we endure temptation. If we endure these trials, this putting to proof of our faith, these outward pressures and calls for us to forsake the Lord, to give in to sin, if we will endure it, God promises that in eternity we will be given a crown of life. We'll turn over to Revelation chapter 2. I'll read just a couple of verses there. You can either listen to me read it or flip over there. But I will point to our remembrance also that in heaven we see in Revelation chapter 4 that there are 24 elders around the throne of God. Some human leaders, either a combination, some think, of the Old Testament heads of the tribes of Israel combined with the 12 apostles in the New Testament. We're not told exactly who they are, but they were human people who found favor from God for living a faithful life of service to him upon this earth. And it's said that they are around the throne. They praise God day and night, and they cease not to cast their crowns before his throne. So these group of people we see around the throne of God received a crown in heaven as a reward for them faithfully serving God, but then we're told that they cast it before the feet of the Lord. So in other words, the crowns that we will receive in heaven are not for us or for our glory, but rather they are for God and for his glory, and they're awarded as if a medal or an Olympic prize was given and then you have that badge of honor that shows that you earned something. Well, in heaven, if we have crowns that God has rewarded us with for our faithful service to him, it will simply be a tangible proof to say, Lord, I spent part of my life living for you. I did this for you. And this is for you to show you that I love you. It's for your honor and your glory, not my own. Heaven is a place that will not be for our glory or to proclaim our goodness, but heaven will be a place where the glory of God is celebrated. And if we would be able to have some crown, some reward, some tangible evidence that we were faithfully striving to serve God with these few short days we have upon this earth, what a wonderful thing that would be to be able to show the Lord, I love you and I live for you. Revelation chapter 2 mentions this crown of life. Verse number 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. That's speaking of Jesus Christ. That's who's speaking out these words. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. Speaking to the fact that though they were poor in wealth in this earth, they were rich towards the Lord and rich in rewards for they were enduring testing and tribulation and trying of their faith, the same as the saved Jews to whom James was writing. And then verse number 10 says this, 
Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. The crown of life, the same one that is mentioned in James 1.12, given to people, promised to this church, if they will faithfully serve the Lord through their tribulations and through their trials. But the writer in, the New, in Revelation chapter 2 and in James chapter 1 is trying to get them to understand the fact that God has allowed these trials. Don't become angry at God during these trials. Don't backslide. Don't sin. Don't walk away from the faith. Rather, submit yourself to the will of God. Be willing to go through trials and endure them and allow God to produce spiritual fruit in your life and eventually a crown of life, which is an eternal reward that will be given to us in heaven. This should be a great encouragement to us and a source of blessing when we face economic, physical trials or trials of persecution, whatever kind of trouble we're going through, to know that if we will just faithfully serve the Lord, his eternal purpose can be accomplished in our life and he will reward us even for going through them. When we're speaking about trials and how trials produces patience and God prescribes wisdom to get through trials and now we're reminded that they will be packaged with temptation and God gives us instructions for how to overcome that temptation, I think about Adoniram Judson, one of the most famous missionaries that history has remembered. As a young man, he felt to go to the land of Burma to spread the gospel. And wasn't there another name? Uh, Myanmar is the modern day equivalent of Burma and he surrendered his life to the Lord to go there to try and tell these people about Jesus Christ to a location that was not a Christian nation that was primitive and he surrendered to go to the mission field. He married his wife, I think God ordained and then set out on a long boat ride to get to the mission field all in a short period of time. He was a member of the Congregationalist Church at the time. And as he was traveling to Burma, he knew that he would be meeting William Carey, who was a famous Baptist missionary. Now, in the Congregationalist Church, as in many churches even today, they did not practice baptism by immersion after salvation. Rather, they practiced baptism by sprinkling when you were a baby. And they will sprinkle babies in certain denominations and say, we're baptizing you into the body of Christ. But without it being our whole study tonight, the New Testament never records babies being baptized. It never records a sprinkling. Rather, the word baptism means to immerse. And in the Bible, we always see people getting saved after, uh, we always see people getting baptized after they were saved. Not as a part of salvation, but rather as a symbol of the fact that we have placed our faith in Christ, we identify with him in his death, and we are raised with him one day as he rose from the dead, so shall we be. I was doing some reading tonight and I saw a news article that said, I think in Arizona, there was a Catholic priest who had been baptizing people with the wrong language for the last two decades. He had said, did you see that too? He, I think he was saying, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, instead of saying, I baptize, 
I baptize you. That's what he was supposed to say. Well, now they're saying the baptisms of the people he baptized for the last 20 years are probably invalid and they're going to have to figure out what to do. I was thinking, I'm just glad that we're not that strict because I messed up all three times I think I've baptized so far. I've either said somebody's name wrong or said what I was supposed to say after wrong and had to correct it. But baptism does not affect our salvation. It's rather what Jesus said when he gave the Great Commission, go you into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, then baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not baptizing babies. Okay, so the, the Anabaptists were one of the most famous groups of Baptists throughout history, and the term Anabaptist simply means rebaptizer. Because they were preaching to people and saying, no, in the Bible, you get baptized after you were saved. Because someone would come to conversion uh, and, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and get saved. And they say, okay, it's time to get baptized. And the new convert would say, no, I was baptized when I was a baby. And they'd say, no, let's study the Bible. Let's look at it. In the Bible, you get baptized after you're saved. So they said, you're just a bunch of rebaptizers. You're going around redunking people in the water that we already sprinkled. So anyway, Adoniram Judson was on the boat trip and he said, I know I'm going to meet this famous Baptist, which is where the term Baptist comes from, is baptizing people in the right order and doctrine of it. So it's kind of a big deal to us because it's in the Bible. And he said, I know the way that Baptists say we're wrong about this. So I'm going to study my Bible while we're on this trip so I can really figure this out and get it nailed down by the time I get there and make sure that I'm right which by the way often does happen that sometimes people go through training, they're launched out into the field, and then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, I need to make sure I actually got this right. You can go through Bible college, you can sit in church, but there comes a time for all of us where we need to study out the word of God for ourselves, make sure that what we've been told is right. Well, while he was on the way over there, he came to the conclusion, I think that we're wrong and they're right. So when he got to the mission field, he went to William Carey, explained his situation, and in humility allowed himself to be baptized, for he had never been water baptized by immersion after his salvation. Then he courageously and with a good amount of integrity resigned from his mission board that was paying his support, which by the way is an honest and right thing to do that if you were rose a bunch of, if you, uh, went out and fundraised from a bunch of churches and they said, we're going to pay you to go spread the gospel. But then you got out there and you started to change your mind on all of these doctrines. It's a good thing of integrity to at least be honest with people. And if you believe that you're following the Lord in a new right direction to trust him to provide. Well, the Lord did provide for Adoniram Judson. And as he set out to spread the gospel to these people, he began to go through great trials. He lost three of his children. Then he lost his wife. And I know that eventually he remarried and that he lost another child. And I think it was four children. And two of the wives that he married died on that foreign land. And I don't have all the details in front of me, but whether it was malaria or sicknesses that they weren't used to or that it was a less safe part of the world, his family got sick and died. He went through an incredible period of depression, but decided that he would stay on the mission field where God had called him and faithfully served the Lord. The next decade after he decided to stay, saw a great many souls come to Jesus Christ for salvation and fruitfulness begin to come. Paul said in one point in one of his epistles that I have planted 
Apollos has watered, but God gives the increase. And the same as if we want to grow in our garden good fruit, we have to go and we have to plant it. That's what sowing is. You want to grow corn, you have to plant it in the ground. Then you have to water it. You have to tend to it and wait for the harvest to come. And sometimes we put one foot in front of the other. We're sowing. We're planting the word of God. We're preaching. We're teaching. We're loving people. We're giving the gospel. And then we water to try and see it grow. But ultimately, it's God himself that gives the increase. That's why we have to trust him with the results. We have to trust that Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I can't build the church. We can't collectively build the church, but God can as we obey. And my point is that some people have come along and sowed, they planted in the ground and they watered and they waited and nothing came for a long time. And then God started to give the fruit. Sometimes that person would die right as the tide was beginning to turn and someone else would step in to where they had labored. And all of a sudden, all of this fruit was given. Hudson Taylor is another great example in China of how he went and labored and waited a long time for converts. Then the Lord began to give the blessing. Randy Ashcraft said that on average, a missionary to a Muslim country, on average, it takes seven years to see one convert come to the Lord Jesus Christ because there's a lot of spiritual darkness and a lot of opposition. But many times people have gone and rather than rushing out and saying, well, let's, you know, you got to pray this prayer when people weren't ready to get saved. They planted, they sowed, they watered, they took on those people's culture and way of life. And eventually God began to give spiritual fruit. And not only were people saved, but he also became an inspirational story to so many people that inspired others to go to the mission field and to give the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just remember that as the trials come, let us be faithful and await God blessing us with eternal spiritual fruit and rewards being given to us if we are simply faithful to keep going through the trials. Let's continue on in James chapter 1 verse 13. Now we get to the part where he talks about temptation that no doubt will be packaged with trials. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Here, we are told that when temptation comes into our life, temptation that causes us to sin, it does not come directly from God. Now, God has not in his creation and in his sovereignty taken away all temptation and opportunities for us to be tempted, those things come from without, but he simply tells us that the temptation to sin does not come from God himself. For God cannot be tempted with evil. It's not possible for God to sin. It's contrary to his nature. He is holy. We don't have to worry about the fact that tomorrow God might fall into sin and no longer be God. Otherwise, we would not be able to rejoice in the fact that our salvation is secure, that it will never pass away, that our life that we have in Christ is eternal life. It's eternal and secure because God doesn't change. We'll get to those verses in just a moment. God is holy. He was holy yesterday. He's holy today. And he'll be holy tomorrow. God cannot even be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. It's not in the character of God to come to us and to try and get us to sin 
as a test to see whether or not we will make it through. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see in one place it says that Abraham was tempted of God. But that word has to do with that outside pressure and test. It was a testing of his faith that when Abraham got to the end of it, God would be able to say, now I know that you really fear me and that you really love me. But God was not tempting him to sin. God was asking him to do something that was right for him to do because it was God who was asking him to do it. Now, if God does not tempt anyone to sin, I don't believe that we should either. I don't believe in placing a stumbling block in front of someone or giving someone an opportunity to sin just to see how they do as a test to see if, if they're strong enough to make it through. Well, I'm just testing out how good of a Christian they are. I offered them to do something that was sinful because I wanted to see how they would respond. Don't do that. Even God himself does not act that way. Verse 14. But every man is tempted. So see what we're saying? God does not come to us directly and tempt us himself, but every person is going to be tempted. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Here the Bible says that tempting to, temptation to sin comes from two different ways. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That word there for enticed has to do with an allurement. It's something that comes from the outside. You could say that you were enticed to buy fast food because of the flashy advertisement that made you crave what it was selling. That's not sinful in and of itself, but things that are sinful, the same way Satan works to put them in front of us to allure our flesh, to get us to look to them and from without pull at us and say, doesn't this look good? I know God said it's forbidden, but wouldn't it be nice to partake in this? That's exactly what he did to Eve in the garden when he went and placed the seed of doubt in her mind. Yea, hath God said, thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the tree. God knows in the day you eat of that fruit, you'll be as gods, knowing good and evil. He was getting her to doubt God. He was saying, God's holding out on you. And look at it. The, the, the fruit of the tree was pleasant to look upon. It was an outside drawing that happens to each and every one of us in one way or another, for we all are born in sin. We all have a sinful flesh. And the devil, one of, the one of his names is the tempter. You'll see printed out there in the copies of the verses that I printed out tonight, Matthew 4, verse number 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. And then if you read the story, it goes on and on. He offers him things that would appeal to Jesus as he was hungry. Command these stones to be made bread. If you'll worship me, Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jump off of this mountain and trust God to save you. All of these twisting of the scriptures out of context that he was coming to test Jesus with. And Jesus simply answered him with the scripture every time, which is a great example for us and how we can resist temptation. Claim the promises of God. Meditate on the Bible. Memorize them. Print out verses that will help you. Look at them and claim them and pray for God to give you strength. But notice the phrase in verse number three, the tempter. 
That's the name of the devil is he is the tempter. And the Bible says every man is tempted when he is enticed. That's what calls to us from without that wants us, that, that we respond to as we want to sin. The other one is the Bible says that we are drawn away of our own lust. That comes from within. That is how we were created. David said in sin, did my mother conceive me? Not that the act was sinful, but rather that his mother was a sinner, his father was a sinner, and when he was conceived as a human being, he was coming into this world with a human nature, with a sin nature. Not one person can live their entire life and be perfect and not sin because it's against our nature. Wherefore, by one man, sin entered into the world and through sin, death passed upon all men. Adam and Eve chose, chose to sin. And as a result, all of us who are their descendants are born with a natural desire to sin. It's in our nature. And we choose oftentimes to give in to that nature when we don't necessarily have to. So we're not going to be perfect, but I believe it's accurate to say we are sinners by nature and by choice. We sin because we were born with a sinful nature, and we also often sin because we resist the grace of God to flee sin and choose to do what we know is wrong. Now, it says that we're drawn away of our own lust and enticed. And often when we see that word lust, all that we think about is sexual sin or that which appeals to our flesh in a sensual ma manner. And it definitely does include that. But the definition of that word lust is simply a longing for the forbidden. It's simply wanting what God says I'm not supposed to have. Yes, that can be sins of the flesh, but it can also be wanting to be wealthy if God is not granting us wealth. It can be wanting to be famous if that's not the lot in life that God has for us. Anything that God does not want us to have that we allow ourselves to long for, that's lust, that's sin, that's us telling God, I know you said in your word I shouldn't have this, but my flesh wants it anyway, and I'm allowing it to rest in my mind and in my spirit and to think about it and to desire it. 1 John chapter 2, I'll flip over there and read a couple of verses from. 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Our flesh lusts for things, our eyes lust for things, and then the pride of life. We're told that these things are not of God, they don't come from him, but rather they come from this sinful world that does not know God. Then we're reminded in verse 17, and the world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So we are supposed to set our affections on things that are above, not the things of this earth. Verse 15 of James 1 continues, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So lust is a longing for the forbidden. To conceive, the Greek word here translated conceive, means to clasp, to seize, or to conceive. So 
that longing for what we shouldn't have is within us. When it takes hold and seizes, then it leads to sin. So wanting to do what I'm not supposed to do eventually leads to sin. Then sin, notice the phrase, when it is finished. Sin comes and does not immediately arrive with all of its judgments and negative conclusions. We're told in Hebrews 11 that Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So as we give into our flesh and say, I don't care what God says, I'm going to live a life for me and for whatever I want, there may be some pleasures that accompany those sins, some enjoyments, but the Bible says they last only for a season. Just as spring, summer, fall, and winter, they arrive, they come, they're here for a moment, then they're gone. So too the pleasures of sin do not last forever. They are here for a while, then they're gone, then comes the consequences. And James 1.15 says, sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now sin, may, being in our lives and reigning in our life, may not lead to an actual tragic death for us, though it has for some people, but it does bring about death in whatever it touches. Death to our happiness, death to our usefulness to the Lord, death to our family and our good name and our reputation and our testimony. And ultimately, yes, sin, if we die in our sins, will lead to eternal death in the lake of fire. But perhaps the greatest reason we should hate sin is it caused death for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who hung on the cross to pay, not for his sins, for he had never sinned, but for our sins. This is the process. It's wanting what we should not have. It's choosing to take the action of sin. Then eventually when sin has worked its way through our life, it always brings about death. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now these people, remember that James was writing to were going through these great trials. They had to run away from their businesses, from their families, from their houses, for no good reason other than the fact that they had served Christ and come to believe in Him as the Messiah. And of all the things they needed to be reminded of, one of them was that God here through the letter of James was wanting to remind them, watch out for temptation. Watch out for getting angry at God. Watch out for what the devil's going to throw at you during this time of trials. And don't choose to turn your back on God. Don't choose to sin. Remember Job's wife. That's exactly what happened to her. They were going through a great time of trial when they had lost all of their possessions. And then they lost all ten of their children. And she said to Job, do you still maintain your integrity? Why don't you just go ahead and curse God and die? That was a sin for her to say that. And Job, as we said before, did not deal harshly with her, but rather lovingly. He said, don't speak as the foolish women speak. God hath given, God hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let us remember that when we were born, we did not come carrying a bunch of possessions. Rather, we came into the world with nothing. And when we die, we're not taking any of it with us. Don't charge God foolishly. She, in a moment of great affliction and trial and loss and heartache and pain and bitterness, turned and sinfully said, there's no reason for us to do anything than to curse the name of God and to die. Don't give in to that spirit of temptation when we go through these trials. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 10. 
Here in the verses that precede verse 10, he's talking about the children of Israel as they were led about the wilderness and they murmured, they complained, they spoke against God. They were going through a hard time as well, but they crossed into sinful territory by accusing God and complaining against him. Verse 10, neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. That's twice tonight we've seen Satan himself referred to by different names, once as the tempter and then as the destroyer. He wants to tempt us to turn our back on God, to go our own way, to give into our flesh so that he ultimately may destroy us. Jason, would you read verse 11 and 12? Yes, and 13. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. So he says in verse 11 that all of the Old Testament stories are written for our example. Just remember that when you study the Old Testament, it's an example that applies to us today. And we see spiritual truths and eternal truths illustrated in those stories. Amen. Verse 12 says, Wherefore, if you think that you stand, take heed, be careful, lest you fall. We all need to be reminded that we're in our flesh, that we're capable of committing any sin that, in, excuse me, that anyone has ever committed. And if there's one area in your life where you think, well, I'll never fall in that area. At least I've conquered this. I'm secure. The Bible says, be careful because your pride and your arrogance and thinking that you stand may end up causing you to fall. Verse 13 then gives us another precious promise. There's no temptation that has come against us other than that which is common to man. It's easy sometimes to think, well, I must be different than anybody else. I must have this harder than anybody else has it. It must be the way that I was made, or it must be what my ancestors did four generations ago. I just can't. I, I, it's too hard for me. The Bible says whatever temptation comes against us, it's a common temptation. All of us face these things for we're all human and we're all sinners. And some of us may have a stronghold in one area or another. Someone may be more likely to have the sin of pride while another is more likely to have the sin of anger. And there are all kinds of reasons that go into it that may include our parents or the way that we were raised or the example that we have. But God tells us, remember that whatever temptations you're facing, they are common to man. That also, also should give us a comfort that within the church, we should know that other people face the same struggles that we face. Right. And sometimes we should not be too arrogant or proud to want to admit to people, I have a struggle. Would you pray for me? Yes. And that may lead to the other person saying, I have something hidden that I'm struggling with too. Would you please pray for me? And as a community of believers, we cannot all just go about pretending that we're perfect and don't have any problems and look to condemn whoever we find out has sinned. 
but rather love one another and realize that we all have sins and we all have struggles. And if we're willing to be merciful to people, and the Bible says even if there's one that's overtaken in a fault, that has completely fallen into sin, that is rejecting God, the goal should be to restore them. Galatians says one that is overtaken in a fault, seek to restore them in a spirit of meekness, which means humility, considering yourself also. So when we go to one who's overtaken in a fault and try to restore them, we're supposed to consider ourselves and humbly pray to God that he would examine our hearts, that we could see our own flaws and remember that we ourselves may fall into any sin if we're not careful and don't look after ourselves. Is it in the book of James I, coming up later? I don't even remember. I think it's in his closing instructions where he says, confess your faults one to another that ye may be healed. Now there's, there's all kinds of ways that we can apply and uh, mitigate and balance out what the scripture is saying. I don't believe every time we sin or fail, we have to go to confess to one another. We're definitely not told to go confess to a priest for forgiveness of our sins. Rather, we are told to go to God himself. There's one mediator between God and men, and that is the man Christ Jesus. You don't have to come to me and ask me to forgive you or ask me to go ask God to forgive you. The veil of the temple that was set up in the Old Testament was thick and could not be physically torn by one person. 30 feet tall or something like that. Thick, going wall to wall. It separated the Holy of Holies. For inside of the veil was the Holy of Holies that represented the mercy seat and where the blood would be sprinkled and sacrifices would be offered. We're told in the New Testament that it's simply a pattern of what's in heaven. So in heaven, there's an actual Holy of Holies with an actual mercy seat. But in the Old Testament, the priest signifying what Christ would one day do would walk in behind that veil and would take the blood of that lamb or that bull or that goat that had been shed and would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and it would be asking God would you please forgive us of our sins we place faith in you we're obeying your word we're looking forward to your Messiah who will one day come and die for our sins but even in the Old Testament do you know what the priest had to do when he went inside the holy of holies and if I get a detail wrong, you can let me know later if it was a different offering or whatever. But when they went in there, if I'm remembering it correctly, to offer the sacrifice for sins, they had to have a piece of rope tied around their ankle. Because if they went in there not right with God or committed some sin or became angry against God or blasphemed the name of God while they were in there, God would strike them dead. And because no one was allowed to go behind the curtain beside the priest, they would have to use that rope tied around their ankle to pull them back out. But when Jesus was on the cross and he had hung there for about six hours, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. The scripture records he gave up the ghost and he died. At that very moment that Jesus died for our sins, many of the Old Testament saints rose from the dead and went around witnessing to people before they were taken back up into heaven. The eclipse went away. There had been a great darkness covering the earth during that time span that Jesus was on the cross. The Bible says there was a great darkness and it says what hour it lasted from until. And if you study it out and compare it was the hours that when Jesus died, that's when it ended. 
Uh, the su- song we sang Sunday says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to a tree? Were you there when the sun refused to shine? Likewise, at the cross says, I had it on the tip of my tongue. Well, might the sun in glory hide. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. It's so what it's saying there in those hymns is it's looking to the doctrine. And while Jesus hung on the cross, it's as if the sun wouldn't even shine upon the earth and God hid it. And it was a moment of terrible darkness. And when this happened, that Jesus died and the earthquakes happened. And at some point away, the Old Testament saints were raised from the dead and the darkness went away and the light came back. The people, the soldiers who stood at the foot of the cross trembled and said, surely this man was the son of God. By what was happening in nature itself, you could feel it in the air. They began to shake with the fear of God. This was not some guilty criminal we nailed to the cross. This man was sent from God. He is God. And at that very moment that Jesus died, the other thing that the word of God says happened is that the veil in the temple was rent in twain. It was torn in half without any action from any disciples or any people. Miraculously, God had that veil ripped right down the middle. Why? To signify the fact that no longer does there have to be a priest we go to. For we are all priests in God. Meaning that all of us can go directly to God in prayer. All of that to say we can go to God to pray. We can go to God to ask Him to forgive our sins. We can go to God to ask for strength. But I think all that came out of me saying sometimes the Bible says confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. I just throw that out there as a community, as a church, as a body of believers that it should not be this thing where we all pretend that we're perfect but rather that we admit that we're all sinners simply here trying to do better and we're here to love one another and to help each other. No temptation has taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able. Sometimes in our flesh, we may say, God, it doesn't seem like I'm able to resist the temptation. It seems like it's impossible. But his word says there is a way if we will go to him and yes, get the help that we need when it's times that we need help. But God will make a way, claim the promise. God, you said you'll make a way that I can escape this temptation. When God allows you to be tempted, he also leaves a door that you can exit off of and get away from the temptation to do wrong. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Here we see that he does not promise that it will be easy. But to bear has to do with a heavy load being placed upon us that we're going to have to push up on. And if we walk with a heavy load and bear that load, it's going to be hard. But God says he will not give us too much of a load that we have to collapse Rather, he promises he will make a way for us to escape temptation, but we have to be willing to bow up under it and to bear it and to ask him for strength. And there's a whole other lesson and message that you could preach on the practicalities of how to overcome temptation. And so many examples. You have to remove yourself from temptation. You have to not trust your flesh. Um, if you've stolen a lot of times and you have a propensity to steal and you're trying to overcome it and someone says, would you watch the money drawer? I'll buy yourself. You should say, 
you should volunteer and say, no, I'm trying to recover. I need help. So uh, you understand what I'm saying. So they would say if, if you're an alcoholic and you drink to excess all of the time and, and, and you, you drive and do all these terrible things. And one man said, pastor, I'm trying so hard. I just can't stop getting drunk. And he said, when I drive home and I go by the bar on the corner, it's just too much. I go in there and I lose it. He said, then find another way to drive home. Because Jesus told his disciples, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So there's a whole other message that's practical ways to avoid temptation. But just remember that God promises he will give us a way to escape it. And if we will claim it and apply the principles of his word, it's not impossible for us to escape temptation. And James is writing to these people who are on the run who are being persecuted for their faith, who have lost everything. And he says, remember during this trying of your faith that temptation will be packaged with your trials. The devil will attack you at this time of weakness, but surrender to God. Remember the end of sin. Remember how it brings destruction and ask him to give you victory over the temptation that is in your life.